My name is Father Bill Stack, and I'm an alcoholic. Will all of you please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It has always been amazing to me that they speak of the spiritual side of the program. It was equally amazing to me when I saw on the program for this desert roundup that we have a spiritual meeting. For those of you who were fortunate enough to be here Friday night to hear Chuck and we're here last night to hear the governor. I don't see how anything I say this morning could be more spiritual than that. to be here. You people will never realize what this means to a Catholic priest. And I've made up my mind, although I will certainly not come in the capacity of a speaker next year, I've made up my mind that come hell or high water, I'm going to get here somehow. And I might as well tell you the reason right away. Someone said it here this morning. This is one hell of attraction. I feel that I ought to begin this talk this morning with something of an apology. You see, my work in the priesthood is that of a missionary. I've met many of you people in a different capacity in various parishes here in San Diego, Riverside, San Bernardino, and thereabouts. I don't know how many of you realized when you heard me standing up there acting like a miniature Billy Graham. Um, I don't know how many of you realized, well, he's an alcoholic, but I'm sure that some of you must have. But my work in the priesthood, and that's why I want to get to this apology, is that of a missionary. And it means that I do an awful lot of preaching. Now, since this is Sunday morning, it just might sound like I'm preaching up here this morning. Now, if it does, I ask you, please ignore it. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm not preaching this morning. To me, this is a heart-to-heart -heart talk with my fellow alcoholics and with all of you who are in Alana. Being a priest, I always find it necessary to say that any opinions voiced by me are 
definitely personal opinions. To some of you, you know, you, you might think, boy, that guy's way out in left field. He's way off the beam. I might not only appear to be, I might actually be just exactly the kind of phony that I'm trying so hard not to be. Now, if any of you out here this morning spot it, do me a big favor. You know where your next 12th step call must be made. There's really nothing sensational at all about my drinking career, with one exception. It was very sensational that my damnable, stinking pride permitted me to come running to you for help. I was ordained a priest way back in 19... 142. I was sent to a wonderful parish in the city of Sedalia, Missouri. Just about one year after my arrival there, while visiting and drinking with a family in the parish, I recall the lady of the household saying to me, Father, if you keep on drinking the way you are now, you're going to be an alcoholic within five years. I remember laughing at her. Of course, as I poured another stiff one. Laughing at her and thinking to myself, well, anybody that can drink as much as I can drink and not stammer in my speech or walk without falling flat on my face, well, that person is in very little danger of ever becoming an alcoholic. Believe me, little did I think then, but how well I realize it now that that very laugh, that very thought, was indicative of the fact that I was already an alcoholic. But I didn't even know it. This was a very busy parish at which I was stationed. I had a full-time job of teaching high school, coaching athletics, especially baseball and basketball. It didn't take me very long to find out that after a hard day in that classroom, just a couple of good jolts would be enough to see me through those coaching activities after school was over. And then, of course, being a busy parish, there was always something going on after the evening meal, after dinner. If it wasn't a meeting of one of the societies, a basketball game, high school dance, it was that inevitable bingo There was always something going on. And you know, then and there, I'm sure that a pattern began to form in my drinking. Oh, I realized how easy it was for me to be a part of this group 
to talk, to be witty, to make the right decisions, to run the affairs, as long as I just had a few drinks in me. Believe me, I was a very, very popular young priest. And if the people didn't tell you that, all you had to do was come and ask me. You know, I say this in all truth and honesty. I was absolutely convinced, and I use that word convinced in its true meaning, absolutely convinced that I was the most wonderful priest, I was the most handsome priest, I was the most popular priest that ever hit that city of Sedalia, Missouri. What did they ever do without me? And God forbid, what would happen when the day came that I was going to be changed? How would they get along without me? Why, just six months after I joined the Lions Club, I was elected president. Oh, and brother, if you think we lions didn't drink when we got together, you have another guest coming. Some masons paid my way into the Elks Club. Brother, that was living, believe me. For 13 years, I would say that the pattern was very much the same until 1955. It was the same story. With the exception, I was in five different parishes in these 13 years, and my drinking naturally became progressively worse. I drank on the job. I drank off the job. The question of money never presented any difficulty. I made then exactly what I'm making now, 35 bucks a month. If you smoke a couple or three packs of cigarettes a day, you know you don't have too much money for booze. But I made friends. And oh, how I used those friends. You know, they knew, they knew they would have me for a frequent visitor over at their homes. And I would stay for a while, if, as soon as I got in that front door, they broke open a bottle. If they didn't, God forbid there were times when I asked them if they had anything to drink in the house. The best way to explain my drinking while on the job would be to say this. It would be a rare occasion when anybody got close enough to me that they didn't smell fumes on my breath. 
off the job during my vacations, which three weeks a year, my drinking always at least doubled. I always looked upon a vacation as a chance to drink and not have to be on the job. Whenever I got a few days off, for instance, I'd get a chance to get out on the golf course, maybe go out fishing for a day, a rare chance to see a Notre Dame football game, or a World Series, maybe one game. I always looked upon these opportunities not to relax, not to enjoy them, not to have fun. No, these were chances for me to drink to my heart's content and not have to be at work. And needless to say, how many of these wonderful things I spoiled. Not only for myself, but for the people with whom I went. Not spoiled by passing out was spoiled because of my antics, and of course, even with my collar on. Spoiled by my braggadocia, my shouting, my being the big word wheel, and half of the time not actually knowing what was going on. Of course, I realized as time went on that I was drinking abnormally, I wasn't like so many other priests who would have a few drinks and let it go at that. I had to have some before the others even started, and some, of course, afterwards. Drinking was causing problems in my priesthood. Because it did, I worried. Whenever I read anything about alcoholism, in a pamphlet or a book, naturally it would disturb me very, very much. But, oh, I always came up with a dandy rationalization. Listen to it. This was mine. Finally, I had to admit to myself I couldn't get away from the facts. I'm an alcoholic, all right. Ah, but I'm not the bad kind. But because this was causing problems in my life, I did quit, on and off, three or four days at a time. But then always would start again, but with a definite resolution, this time it's going to be different. I'm not going to drink so much. You know, the other night, Friday night, Chuck spoke of insanity, whether we're drinking or not. And how true this is. Imagine this. After three days of not drinking, going to the liquor store, buying a bottle, putting it on my dresser in my bedroom, standing and looking at that bottle and talking to it and saying, Now listen. You would last any gentleman at least a week. You're going to last me a week. It never happened. I would always, though, somehow or other, save about that much to take care of the shakes the next morning. 
I went on the only beer routine, as so many of us have, and I got so fat I looked like a stuffed pig ready for butchery. I tried the geographical switch. I asked my boss, my provincial, for a change from Cincinnati to another place. Of course, I didn't give him the real reason why I wanted the change, but he was kind enough to give it to me. It didn't help one bit. I was sent to Norfolk, Virginia, and my drinking became increasingly worse there. The longest period that I ever went without booze for 13 years was seven weeks. And this I did out of friendship for another person. Another time I went without drink for one month. Oh, this was something. It happened to be the beginning of the month of November. I was visiting a family with whom I had consumed a lot of drinks. And the lady said to me, Father, I'll bet you $25 you can't quit drinking for a month. Now, I said this was the first of November. The Catholics who are here this morning know that this month of November is especially spent for special prayers for our dearly departed ones. So when she said, I'll bet you 25 bucks, I said, I'm not interested in your $25, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I won't take a drink this month, and I'll offer this sacrifice up for our dear departed ones. And I did. I didn't take a drink that month. But oh, come December the 1st, right away, over to the house, I collected the $25 in which I was not interested and you know where that $25 went, but fast. I suppose if we were to use AA terminology, I would best be described as a high-bottom drunk. But believe me, ladies and gentlemen, if it had gone on any longer, I just might be. Why say might? I would be one of those poor, unfortunate Catholic priests that are on Skid Row today. I may have caused serious scandal in my priesthood. I really don't know. If I did, no one told me about it. I say I may have, I personally feel I probably did, because I suffered the inevitable blackouts that every alcoholic will suffer sooner or later. But here's one thing that has always amazed me. I lived with two different priests, two pastors, my bosses, each one for three years straight. Neither one of them, oh, they knew I liked to drink, but neither one of them knew I had a drinking problem. Now, the only way I can explain this, possibly, is because they were elderly men, and they might have lost their sense of smell. Or it could have been this. In all my drinking, I was always faithful to my assigned tasks. Oh, this 
practically killed me sometimes to be where I was supposed to be at the time I was supposed to be, but I was. And the few instances that I fouled up, I always came up with a beautiful excuse. Excuse, let's call it by its real word, a nice big fat lie. I remember one time especially, this is when I was stationed in Flint, Michigan, I was out three nights straight after midnight, and I happened to walk into the boss's office one morning, and I saw a note on his desk, call his provincial, out three nights straight after midnight. I walked upstairs to my room, I paced up and down, you know the anxiety, the fear, is he going to turn me in, what's going to happen if he does, that all of a sudden it hit me like a bolt out of the blue, what I could say. I walked downstairs, he had just finished his breakfast, a grand old man, but oh, he was mad, he had very bushy eyebrows and they were actually quivering. I said, Father, may I please see you privately for a moment? We walked into his office. I closed the door so the housekeeper would not overhear. And I said, Father, I have a terrific problem. Now, I know you're a very mature priest, and I respect your judgment better than any priest I know. I said, Father... There's a priest in town here, I'm not going to tell his name, Father, there's a priest in town here who has a terrible problem drinking. And I've been up with him three nights straight. That little session ended up with the good old priest putting his arm around me and feeling sorry for me. Ladies and gentlemen, the beginning of the end came in the spring of 1955, and I think it's amazing how this started. Just as in the governor's talk last night, he told us how he found AA. This is how it happened. Some lady in the parish called me one morning and she said, Father, you're going to receive a very important letter from back east one of these days. I was too frightened to ask any questions. So I hung up, and this is what it turned out to be. She had read a series of articles by a father, Fred Lawrence, from Scranton, Pennsylvania, on alcoholism. Now, father Lawrence is not an alcoholic, but he has dedicated his life to working with alcoholics. It says, he tells me, it makes him a better priest. Well, anyway, she, reading this series of articles, had written to him, telling him about me. I got a letter from him, and God love that man for the way he worded that letter. It was something like this, Dear Father, a lady of your parish, and he mentioned the name, 
has written to me about you. She feels that you might have a drinking problem. She should have known. I cried in my beer over at their home with she and her husband hundreds of times. But he said, we know how ladies in a parish are prone to exaggerate about their priests. So if you have no problem drinking, just forget I ever wrote to you. But if you're having a little rough time with the bottle, come and see me sometime. I think I can help you. Oh, I picked up that phone, and I called that woman, and believe me, I called her every name under the sun. But do you know what? I saved that letter. Two months later, getting ready to go on my annual vacation, which was in June, the latter part of June, I threw that letter in my bag. I got home to Cleveland. My dear, wonderful mother gave me a good sum of money so her dear little Willie could enjoy his vacation. I borrowed my brother's car, headed for Old Haunts, Cincinnati, Ohio. In one week's time, I went through that $200. Friday night driving back to Cleveland, I had less than a dollar in my pocket. I hit Ashland, Ohio, which I think is about 40 or 50 miles from Cleveland. The gas gauge was very low, but I was lower. What would that money go for, a drink or gas? And you know it went for the drink. But I made it home, and soon as I got home, I picked up that phone and called Allegheny Airlines, made reservations for the next morning to fly to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Scranton. I remember getting off of that plane, getting a cab. Oh, I was sick. My collar looked like an accordion. And I went up to a cab driver and I said, Do you know a nice, respectable bar where you can take a priest? He took me to one. I invited him in with me. I can't help but wonder what he thought as I downed three doubles in a hurry. He had a hard time keeping up with me with a small glass of beer. I went to the priest's place. He didn't know I was coming, but oh, how he welcomed me. We sat down and talked in his room, and finally he came out with this. He said, Bill, what are you willing to do to quit drinking? I said, Father, I'm willing to do anything. And then he said, Are you willing to go to an AA meeting with me tonight? I almost said anything but that. But I was so sick. Even as I think about it, I can feel it. Especially mentally. So sick that I said, all right, Father, I'll go with you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll never forget that first meeting as long as I live. Never will I forget it. I went there with the willingness 
to do something about my drinking problem. What I saw there that night, I can't describe it. It was a big meeting, about 150 people, and I think that was good for my pride. I think if there had been five or ten, as I was telling a gentleman just a little while ago, I might have walked out, but 150 people, I, I saw everything there. I saw love. Let me best describe it by just saying, I saw faith. This willingness to do something about my drinking and this faith gave birth to hope. I knew, somehow or other, that this was the answer. I went to four meetings in those three days, Saturday, two on Sunday, one on Monday. Many of the people were at all the same four meetings. And I'll never forget, at the end of the last meeting, they knew I was flying back to Cleveland the next morning. A very heavy-set lady come up to me, and she put her arm around me. She said, Father Bill, I'm not of your faith. In fact, I'm Eastern Star. The Masons get in there somehow. She said, but... Why don't you forget everything you've heard during these past three days? I looked at her, forget everything. She said, yes, forget everything. Will you just remember one thing? Don't take that first drink. Oh, thanks be to God she said that. Four meetings, but my dear people, except for part of one little joke... I don't remember a thing that was said during those four meetings, not a single thing. And then she did something amazing. Talk about love, real love. By the way, I told Chuck yesterday that whenever I talk to nuns, I give a lot of nuns retreats. I talk to them on charity and love. I tell them, sisters, you have never, never seen love until you get acquainted with Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't tell them to start it, but... <laughs> but the amazing thing this lady did was she called her husband over. She said, Father, if you think it's going to be tough when you get off of that plane tomorrow morning, my husband and I, at our own expense, will fly back to Cleveland with you. Wasn't that something? Telling me this, that's all I needed. Because in the back of my mind, who knows, I don't know, but in the back of my mind, I kind of think might have been the idea of getting one drink when I got off of that plane. Then followed two months and three weeks of the happiest time I have known in my entire life. On September the 27th, my boss told me to take a little business trip, but in take two days' time. I didn't have to be back to the parish till the following night. Immediately, the old pattern was there. I didn't have to be back on the job for two days. I took care of that business within one hour. I thought, oh, just pick up the phone. 
Call somebody. You won't take that first drink. Oh, no, I didn't want a part of that phone. I wanted that drink. I drove right into a bar. I drank on the 27th and the 28th, the morning of the 29th, shaking to high heavens, the sweats, the dry heaves. I knelt down next to my bed, and I said, Dear God, I've said this a million times to you before. I need a drink this morning for medicine to get me to through this day. I don't care how much I have to sweat and shake the rest of the day. I need it now, but don't you dare let me take any more. I poured out a half a tumbler full of scotch. It stayed down miraculously. Thanks be to God and thanks be to you. Since that day, September the 29th of 1955, one day at a time, I have not found it necessary to take that first drink. To the uninformed who are not alcoholics, or to those, maybe there are some present here, who have just had the blessing of finding this wonderful fellowship, especially if you're Catholics. It might come as a little bit of a surprise to you to see a priest, an alcoholic. At so many of the meetings that I attend, I see this reaction. People look at me, and they're kind of floored that there's a priest at the meeting. I suppose most of them think that I'm there to try to find out a little more about this alcoholism so I be in better position to help other people. And when they find out that I'm there to help myself, they are amazed. So many of them come up to me, newcomers, after a meeting and say, Well, Father, how could this ever happen to you? Why, you're a priest. How could you ever become an alcoholic? Now, I never, from the very beginning, ever resented that. But, oh, brother, just let one of my fellow priests, let one of my confreres, this used to be it, come up to me and say, Well, Bill, why don't you use your willpower why don't you pray more? Why don't you lead a more priestly life? Immediately, I was on the defensive. I was always ready and did it many times. Jumped down their throat with something like this. Well, you should know that just because a collar is turned backward, that doesn't make any one of us less of a human being. You should know that Alcohol is not a respecter of persons. Why don't you do a little reading? You should know that there's a physical compulsion that once you've had that first drink, you're going to keep on drinking. I used to do this, but I don't anymore. I don't anymore for this simple reason. The truth can be stated very simply. I am... An alcoholic. 
Whether I was born an alcoholic, whether I became one because my dear mother and daddy didn't bring me up in the right way, whether I became an alcoholic because of an abuse of social drinking, whatever the cause for my emotional immaturity, it doesn't make any difference. I am what I am, and that is what must be faced. I no longer seek the why and the wherefore of my alcoholism. I am a priest alcoholic, but I am one of those fortunate ones who found you in this wonderful fellowship. It certainly was not God's fault that I drank too much, that I became an alcoholic. Although, by the way, I would like to publicly thank God for permitting something in my life that led me to something as wonderful as this. It wasn't anybody else's fault that I became an alcoholic, although you know how I can imagine anyway how I could blame everybody and everything for my drinking too much. It wasn't the fault of any problems in my priesthood that I became an alcoholic. Every single problem, everyone in my priesthood was the result of my drinking and not the cause of it. So if we're going to speak of faults, it was simply mine. I love liquor. I loved what it did to me, especially those first few drinks. And then when the time came when the same enticing fluid caused serious problems in my life, I tried to quit, and I couldn't. Believe me, I think I really tried very hard, especially during the last five or six years of that drinking. I remember occasionally getting up in the middle of the night, kneeling down next to my bed, praying for one hour, telling God I wasn't going to drink too much the next day. I remember very often, and talk about insanity again, before taking that first drink, praying and saying, God, I'm not going to drink any more than this one drink today. I went to doctors too. Oh, there was one doctor in Cincinnati, Ohio, gave me the most wonderful prescription, some kind of green medicine. He said, Father, every time you get the urge, take a teaspoonful of this. You know what happened? I like that so much that the druggist refused to refill the prescription.
When I got very, very mad at the druggist, I called the doctor and I said, How about it? I want this prescription filled. He said, Father, I'd rather have you on the booze instead of on that stuff. I went to another doctor. He gave me a shot in the arm every or twice a week. Of course, I kept on drinking along with the shot in the arm. I don't know what that was supposed to do. But isn't it amazing, ladies and gentlemen, in this enlightened day and age, isn't it amazing that the medical profession doesn't tell you and me, why don't you try AA? Isn't it equally amazing when you go to a priest or a minister, instead of saying, why don't you use your willpower? Isn't it amazing in this enlightened day and age that that priest or minister doesn't say, why don't you try AA? Of course, if they had said it to me, I wouldn't have tried it. That's not the point. In 1954, to show you how I was trying to quit drinking, I traveled all the way from Flint, Michigan to Gethsemane, Kentucky, to the Trappist Monastery. I spent two and a half days there. And believe me, when I left there, I was determined this was it. And I mean it. A determination that I had never had in my priesthood before. Starting back, I got as far as Cincinnati, 120 miles away. I had dinner with some of my own drinking buddies. They all ordered a cocktail before dinner. It came to me, and oh, this took an awful lot of, may I use the word, sure, guts. It took an awful lot of guts for me to very sheepishly say, no, I don't, I don't care for any thanks. One of the ladies at the table said, Father, if you're not going to drink, we won't either. I looked at the waitress and said, bring me a double scotch, please. The mistake, the mistake I was making, of course, is a very obvious one. I suppose a mistake made by many alcoholics. I wanted to quit drinking too much. I wanted to quit drinking to excess. Believe it or not, for the longest time, I never had more than a hazy idea that it was the first drink that did the damage and not the tenth. I always felt that with all of my spiritual help as a priest, I ought to be able to take three or four good jolts and let it go at that. As you well know, it never worked. And even before I came to this wonderful fellowship, when the conviction just grew on me, I had to know it. I was stupid, but not quite that. I had to face it, that it was the first drink that did the trouble. I didn't have what it took to stay away from that first drink. You gave me that. And even if I had been able to stay away from that first drink, it could not have been for a long time, because in my wildest dreams, I never, never would have come to the conclusion 
that pride, which manifests itself in all kinds of ways, stinking self-pity, boasting, resentments, trying to be the big shot. I never would have realized that these things must be continuously fought against. Otherwise, I would take that first drink. You gave me that too. So if there is anybody here surprised that a priest is an alcoholic, I know most of you aren't, but just for the sake of anybody that might be, I'd like to make it very clear, I feel obliged to do this, that it was not God who failed me. My church did not fail me. I failed them. I put up a barrier between God and me, and between my church and me. And they couldn't get through to me as long as that barrier was there. This wonderful fellowship knocked down that barrier. And one day at a time, it is keeping it down. How often at meetings don't you and I hear someone say, I found a new way of life. Now, to those who are not alcoholics, oh, some of you Al-Anons, I know you can understand this, but it takes an alcoholic to really understand what we mean by a new way of life. But you know what? I don't say that. I don't say I found a new way of life. I found life itself. I was a man without hope. And a man without hope is a man without life. I found life itself. I didn't know what living was before I got into this fellowship. Believe me, it's an awful thing to have to admit for a Catholic priest. But it's God's truth. I didn't know what living was. Suddenly existence confronted me. Happiness, oh ladies and gentlemen, I just can't find the words to describe what I mean by happiness. But I don't think I'm being sentimental at all, or being very far from the truth itself, when I say it must be like the beginning of heaven itself. You know, just to wake up in the morning, not two hours before my alarm went off with the shakes and the sweats, but to wake up when that alarm went off, not to have to run to the bathroom to heave. You know, there was no sense in running most of the time. They were dry heaves. What an amazing thing it was for me to look in that mirror while shaving and to be able to smile, walking down the steps and knowing that my foot was really on that step. And oh, you'll never, never know what it means for a priest to offer Mass in the morning without the shakes, without remorse. This was something. 
How often six o'clock mass in the morning, a cold church, everybody bundled up there freezing to death, and here Father Bill up at the altar, he's sweating. What a joy it was to be able to really enjoy eating breakfast. The bacon and the eggs, too. Why, it even looked good. Oh, I could mention so many other things. You think these are small. They are small. They're material blessings. I understand that. But to me, ladies and gentlemen, they were the biggest thing in the world. And the climax of all this came in 1957 when my big boss, my provincial in Dayton, said, Bill, we're starting a new venture out on the West Coast in California. I want you to be one of the first ones to go out, give missions and retreats. I looked at him. I thought he had a hole in his head. And I said, Father, you know if I take one drink, the whole thing might blow sky high. Our venture out on the West Coast will be spoiled. What a shot in the arm he gave me when he said, Bill... As long as you stick to AA, I'll never worry about you. The greatest blessing, by far the greatest blessing that this fellowship has given me, the most priceless treasure on the face of this year, Earth, is peace of mind. All of you wonderful alcoholics out here know what I mean when I say peace of mind. But even you, even you, I don't think you can grasp it fully. I think it would take another alcoholic priest to understand me when I say, I am glad I am an alcoholic. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I am in possession of a peace and a happiness today that I don't think is possible in non-alcoholics. I don't ask anyone here to try it who are not alcoholics. But I just can't dream of myself being any happier than I am now were I not one of those fortunate, afflicted ones who found their way into this fellowship and met all of you. Now, I don't mean this happiness just to be a selfish thing. I'm trying to make it non-selfish. How it helps me in my work almost every day, as some of you in this group know, I meet either a problem drinker or I meet someone in a family that is afflicted with a problem drinker. I know their language. I'm not saying I can always help them. But I know what they're talking about. I can sympathize with them. I'm not criticizing anybody else, those who say use your willpower, but at least I know because of my affliction. I'm not going to tell them to use their willpower. So I thank God for this. And I firmly am convinced that God permitted this in my life in order that I might be able to help others. This happiness that is mine now, let's, let's uh, not think that I don't have any problems as a priest. 
Many of the same problems and the difficulties that bothered me so much almost drove me insane, especially during the last five or six years of my drinking. They're still with me today, but you know what you taught me. Yes, you taught me this. You taught me to face those problems and not run away from them. You taught me to change the things that I can and to learn a little acceptance, those things that can't be changed. And you know, it's, it's amazing, it's so amazing now when I find myself, not always, but once in a while, I find myself trying to be cheerful when my poor little feelings are hurt. You know, honestly, it's amazing when I find myself trying, and again, I say not often, to use a little common sense to take people as they are, not as I would like them to be. Oh, what amazes me most is once in a while, maybe once a month, I find myself trying to be patient with disagreeable persons. This is hard for me because everybody that doesn't agree with me is a disagreeable person. By far the biggest battle, problem if you want to call it, is that stinking ego, which the governor referred last night. Oh, I want to be on top. I want to be the best. Once in a while. Once in a while. I try not to put myself forward. But it doesn't always work. Just last week, may I quickly tell you this, just last week my provincial called me from Dayton. He said, Bill, I like you if you can arrange your missionary schedule. I'd like you to come back east for the month of July to talk to our young priests. They have what they call an apostolic novitiate. All priests five years or younger ordained must come to it. There would be a little over 150 priests there. What a flattering offer. Me! He asked me, out of 475 priests we have here in this country, to talk to those youngsters one talk a day for a month. Of course, after I settled down, I realized that I could tell him an awful lot about drinking, and that might have been in his mind. Nevertheless, the offer was a tremendous honor. I had to turn it down because of lack of time for preparation. But you know, after I hung up that phone, the first thought, I live with seven other wonderful priests, by the way, the first thought was this, let them know about it, you're the big shot around here, you got the offer. I said, no, I'm going to keep my big mouth shut. That was at 10 o'clock in the morning when I hung up that phone. And you know what? I did. I didn't say a word about it until dinner time when they were all there. But what I love about all of this is just like so many of you, 
We know we got these rotten character defects, every single one of us. I'm, I'm talking for myself, let's stick here. But it's wonderful to know it and want to do something about it. You know, Chuck Chamberlain, Friday night, ladies and gentlemen, very dramatically and very beautifully modernized, the parable of the prodigal son coming back to his father. Do you ever think of what it might mean when that prodigal son is a priest of God? And oh, how good Chuck made me feel Friday night when, amongst other things, he said when he got all fed up sleeping and eating with the pigs. He came back home. The beautiful part of the story is this. His father didn't wait for him as if to say majestically, I told you so. No, his father saw him coming in the distance. He ran out to meet him. And as smelly as he must have been from those pigs, he threw his arms around him and he hugged him and he kissed him. All he cared about was that the son who was lost had come back home. Remember, that son can be, and in this case is, a priest of God. Sometimes, I suppose, I'm prone to be disturbed about the past filth, the stench, my priesthood, especially things of omission to which the governor referred last night. But then I always try to recall something beautiful I read one time about the lily, the queen of all flowers. Do you know where it draws its material for its beauty? From garbage and manure. So I've got a chance. I made up my mind a long time ago, if you'll bear with me just a few more minutes, that whenever I get a chance to talk to our fellowship, I would never leave without saying something that might be of benefit to newcomers. Of course, we're all newcomers, every one of us. It's one day at a time. But I can't help but think of certain things that helped me so tremendously in the beginning and are helping me every day now. And that's why God bless, I wish I knew her name, that eastern star in Scranton, Pennsylvania, who just said this, don't take that first drink. Reportedly, Dr. Bob was supposed to have said before he died, keep it simple. To me, this is simplicity. I can get all fouled up in my thinking so often. Things can happen to me, I get all disturbed that I'm afraid, I'm scared stiff. But oh, as long as I hang on to that thought, no matter what happens, if an atom bomb drops this afternoon, if we suffer an earthquake as they did in Alaska recently, 
everything somehow or other will be all right as long as I don't take that first drink. Oh, I might die in the earthquake, yes, but so what? At least I'll die sober. And that's the most important thing in the world. I believe so much in this. Hanging on to the one thought, whenever any problem comes up, everything, everything will be all right, but don't take that first drink. I remember having an opportunity to talk at the prisoners at Las Padres, outside of San Luis Obispo. It was rather a big meeting. They want to hear what this drunken priest had to say. The assistant superintendent was sitting in the back of the big room, and amongst other things I was telling the men, Gentlemen, when you get out of here, I don't care what you do. Write all the phony checks you want. Rape. Do anything. The superintendent shot out of his seat like this. But he sat down quickly when I said, Do any of these things, but don't take that first drink. Because we all well know they're not going to do those things. We're not going to live a rotten life as long as we stay away from that first drink. And you taught me a tremendous lesson in how to stay away from this first drink. Something I should have known. Oh, I know it. Something that St. Paul taught. But it never got through to me. I used to say in the morning, kneeling down next to my bed saying, God... I'm going to take three drinks today, and that's all I'm going to take. God, I'm not going to be a fool today and drink too much. And all the time, I was just exactly that kind of a fool. And you taught me to change the approach to this. Dear God, I'm a pushover for fools. Please don't let me take that first drink today. And then the miracle happened. You know, a lot of priests give me credit. Oh, they pat me on the back. Bill, almost nine years, a wonderful job. And when I tell those priests I didn't have a thing to do with it, they smile. They don't believe me. But it's the truth. I had nothing to do with it except the simple thing of saying, God, please don't let me drink that first one today. May I say just a couple of words about happiness again? Ladies and gentlemen, in spite of what has been said by anybody else, to me, sobriety without happiness would mean absolutely nothing, because were I not happy, I wouldn't be sober. I'm sure of that. Happiness to me is found in the heart and the core of the 12 steps, the third step handing our lives and our wills over to the care of God as we understand Him. To me, God is synonymous with love. God is a tremendous lover. I remember one of our missionaries one time, working in the back hills of the Southland, he met a gentleman one day who had a horrible habit of using God's name in vain, right and left, so he asked him, why don't you try to get over it? And the guy looked at him and said, why should I? So the missionary told him the story of Bethlehem. The gentleman looked at him and said, I ain't fixing to believe that. Why not? I just don't believe it, that's all. So the priest 
told him the story of Calvary. Gentleman said, I ain't fixin' to believe that either, and why not? You mean to tell me that God became a little baby? That he grew up in a small town, that he died on the cross for me? I just don't believe it. And why not? Because no person could ever love me that much. It is amazing, isn't it? I often think to myself in my own imagination, the Father and the Son up in heaven, let's say some thousand years after creation, looking out over the whole earth, the Son says to his Father, Father, what are we going to do with these people that we created? They're fouling up their lives. We put them on earth to be happy, to enjoy living. Look how they're fouling things up. Oh, I know what I'll do, Father. I'll go down on earth, and I'll become one of them. I'll show them how to live so they can be really happy. And the father says to his son, Son, do you know what they'll do to you if you become one of them? They won't even give you a decent place in which to be born. You'll be born in a cattle shed. The day will come they'll tie you to a pillar and tear your flesh to lacerated shreds. Ah, the day will even come when they'll nail you to a cross and treat you like a fool and an idiot when you're dying. That's all the thanks you'll get if you try to show them how happiness is to be gained. The son says to his father, Father, I don't care what they do to me. I love them so much. To me, this is God as I understand Him. How can I miss? How can I possibly miss by letting go and letting God? Handing my life over to Him. He knows what's best for me, for Father Bill Spat. And those things that happen in my life, big or small, is what he wants to happen. He's directing my life. So I'm going to try to let him direct it. Someone has compared life to God and me working on a piece of tapestry. God pushes the needle down. All I have to do is push it back up. And so we weave all lay day long, just God and me, now God sees the beautiful design that he's forming of my life. I can't see it as I look up. All I see is a snarl and confusion of threads. It just doesn't make any sense. But God sees it. And he loves. Someday, I'm going to see it too. And then I'll be forced to say, this God to whom I turn over my life has done all things well. You know, the background of a person's life can be get pretty dark sometimes, can it? As God just fits in piece by piece, just like pieces of stone fit into a mosaic. Sometimes we feel those stones are a little bit too sharp. They hurt Oh, how they hurt. 
or they're too big. God's forcing them in. You know, but if we live, really live this third step, someday we're going to see the full beauty of that mosaic. And then once again we'll be forced to say, God has done everything well. What the future holds for me, I don't know. That's in God's hands. All I have is today. And I know that today the most important thing in the whole wide world, nothing more important, is that I don't take that first drink and that I strive for spiritual progress. It is not important that I learn any more about alcoholism. But it is terribly important that I learn more about God and about me. Because the more I learn about God, the more I realize His power and His love, the more I learn about me, the more I realize my weaknesses. With that combination, how can I miss? How can anyone miss? He proved it to me by taking drink out of his life, my big weakness. Now, I know, no matter what it is, that his power and his love will overcome my weaknesses. I thank you for being such wonderful listeners, and God bless you all.